Hello everyone, my name is Katina Horton. I am a toxic relationship recovery coach. And today's topic is entitled, Is It Really Love? Six reasons you are a magnet for the narcissist, okay? Now love has been translated all different ways, right? You got lust, love bombing, soul cravings, infatuation, flattery, etc. right? And so the way that we define love is the way that we live, uh, that we give and receive love, right? And then the way that we give and receive love, that's actually the way that we live love, right? It becomes our MO, so to speak. So the first reason that you are a magnet to the narcissist is because you have a seed of rejection, right? There's a seed of rejection in your soul. And this seed of rejection has produced two addictions. You've got love addiction and approval addiction, right? You are addicted to someone loving and approving of you, right? And so what that means is that you went searching for your family's love story garden, right? Instead of God's. You might say, well, what do you mean by that? God's love is perfect, right? And his perfect love, it casts out all fear. And in the scripture, 1 John 4, 18, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. God's love story begins and ends right? With him lavishing us with love, with unconditional love, and our identities are grounded and rooted in him, right? We're imperfect human beings. And therefore, our parents' love, which is an earthly resource that God the Father, uh, of God the Father's love, that is, it was imperfect, right? Filled with brokenness, sin, and then the love story gardens, right, contain toxic roots, and these roots contain lies, right? Those lies provoked fear of not receiving what we need, right? And so that means that from birth to 18 months, our entire little being, right? That we, uh, we banked on having that need and security met from our parents and caregivers, right? But then we got our parents' choices of displaying love coming into the picture, right? and them being attuned to the needs that led us to developing one of four attachment styles, right? And so the first attachment style is the secure attachment. That means I securely attached to my parents as infants and toddlers and felt completely safe with them. The second one is the dismissive slash avoidant attachment. I did not attach to my parents for either reasons of neglect, rejection, or being so consumed with their lives to the point that they were unavailable. But then I came up with a fourth one as I was writing up this message. Also, lack of knowledge, right? If you don't know something, then you can't do something about it, right? As Maya Angelou would say, when we know better, we do better, right? And so then along with the dismissive slash avoidant, I'm still reading on that, I learned to soothe myself and think I'm better off without people. So this attachment style leads to being emotionally unavailable for people, 
keeping oneself in isolation and just avoiding people altogether or giving people the opposite of what they're asking for in the relationship. And Matthew 7, 9 through 10 gives us an example of a person who has avoidant attachment style. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? So think about it. If you're asking someone for something, you know, oh, may I have an apple to eat? And they give you a ruler. Does that make sense? No. But if you um, possess the uh, dismissive, avoidant attachment style, that's likely part of what it is you're doing. Okay. And so for the ambivalent slash anxious slash preoccupied attachment style, it says, I securely attached to my parents sometimes and other times I didn't. I may have uh, later on have issues with self-worth, intimacy, trust and reliance as well as fear of abandonment. And then the last attachment style is the disorganized slash fearful avoidant attachment style, right? And this one says, I securely attached to my parents, rather insecurely, sorry. I insecurely attached to my parents slash caregivers because of traumatic, abusive, neglectful situations that put my physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual uh, well-being at stake. One of my or more of my caregivers displayed inconsistent slash erratic behavior that kept me off balance with a, with a push and pull relationship towards them. I needed them, but didn't trust them to fulfill my needs. Okay, and so this is also the case where some of us actually could have started off with secure attachments and then something happened along the way, either as a teenager or a young adult that changed that attachment style. And then these attachment styles could also change according to the people uh, whom we're in relationship with. There are some people that make us feel safe and secure, and then there's other people that make us feel unsafe and insecure, right? And, and those people are probably ones that's emotionally dangerous, to put it lightly, you know? And so our family's love story garden begins and ends with whatever lie Satan made our ancestors believe. These are our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our great-great-grandparents, great-great-great-grandparents, on and on and on, right? Whatever lies he made our ancestors believe about love and freedom, okay? That's what our lo family's love story gardens are composed of. And so then we drank the Kool-Aid. We came along we drank the Kool-Aid. We took the lie and we ran with it, right? We see everything that looked good on paper about this man, right? Boom, 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 right? But finding someone whose heart was full of brokenness, hypocrisy, evil, and everything else but what we saw. And his main goal was to steal, kill, and destroy us at all costs, right? And so the other thing that happened with our family's love story regarding is either we were not provided with the nutrients that we needed or like with Eve, you allow someone else through the spirit of deception to trick you into thinking that you didn't have everything you need, right? Because it could be about, it could also be about perception. So either your parents didn't give you what you needed or that could have been a false sense of uh, a false perception that they did not. Because a lot of times as children, you see things as a one-sided picture. You understand what I'm saying? So it's a lot of things that come into play, right? And so what happened is 
because of either not receiving the nutrients you needed, right? Or the perceived lack of nutrients. What happens is that you took on the spirit of anger, okay? The spirit of bitterness, right? The seed of rejection and the spirit of offense, okay? And so unfortunately, all these years, you've been walking around with these spirits, wearing them as if they are a garment of praise, right? And so somehow you didn't get the memo that these spirits attached to your concept of love, right? Has played a major role in how you've been moving about in every single relationship in your life. You see what I'm saying? But Satan doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to find out this information because what he does, he wants to what? Steal, kill, and destroy you at all costs. So if you're going to find this out, and you're able to heal through this. Of course, he doesn't want that to happen, right? So some way or another, we all ended up singing a song that I jammed back to, uh, jammed to back in the day with my cousin. And it was by Stacey Lattisaw. It was called, uh, I forgot the name of the song, but the lyrics went, I found love on a two-way street and lost it on a lonely highway. He held me in desperation. I thought it was a revelation. And then he walked out. That's what the narcissistic individual man does. He, he walks out. This narcissistic partner, at one point, he's going to walk out. He's going to discard you, and that's just going to be the end, right? That's the reality of being in a relationship with a soul-tied, toxic uh, individual, right? And so nothing is what it really seems, like the song says, right? But then again, nothing was really what it seemed when Eve thought that that fruit was going to fulfill everything she thought she was missing, right? Once the voice of the serpent got into her head, right? So we got to be careful of the lies we allow uh, people to bring into our heads, right? And so Satan convinced Eve of the lie about love, right? And that lie changed the trajectory of her entire life. One lie, love is restrictive. And how do we know that when we look at scripture, it says in uh, Genesis 3 and 5, uh, you will not surely die, the serpent told her. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what does that imply? In other words, he was saying like, honey, you missing something. You were not made like everybody else. You are a manufacturer reject. <laughs> okay. And so uh, the something that Satan's unspoken message conveyed is like about being like God, telling her like, you know, knowing good and evil that she was not as powerful as God. And it also implies, he also implied with Eve that God was a liar, right? And that uh, he had been keeping a secret away from Eve all this time, okay? It suggests that as well that human beings need to have the same power, control, and sovereignty as God, right? So Satan had worked Eve on, he worked her mind on overtime in a little bit of time. And that's all it takes for us to go ahead and self-sabotage. But we got to remember that God is love. And so as soon as Satan convinced Eve of the lie that God's love was restrictive, meaning it wasn't enough, right? He convinced her that God himself wasn't enough, right? And therefore, she herself wasn't enough, okay? And therefore, the fruit would provide what she was missing. 
And the scripture in, in Genesis 3, 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good <laughs> for food, and it was pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Hmm. And when you met your narcissistic partner, you shared too much too fast, leading him to say something like, well, you know what, baby, all these other men, they, all these other men, they, they don't know how to treat you right, baby. God gave you to me so I could be the man of your dreams, your soulmate and, and everything a woman could ever want out of life, baby. You would never find another, another love, another man like me. And you know what? Trust me, after being in a relationship, with the narcissist, you won't ever find anything like that. That's one thing that uh, he wasn't lying about when he said that to you. So next thing you know is that we're inheriting uh, trauma starting with Eve in the Garden of Eden, okay? And we've been struggling ever since. This inheritance infected us with that same lie, that love is restrictive, leading us to the limited belief, okay? We got that limiting belief going on. I am not enough. That Eve took on in the Garden of Eden. And so then what happened is we end up with a double whammy. First we inherited Eve's lie and limiting belief in our DNA. Making us conclude that God's love isn't enough. Therefore God isn't enough. And then number three is that uh, we ourselves are not enough. Right? And so what we did, we took our, we equated our parents, our earthly parents' brokenness, wiring, deficiencies, and abilities with God. But that's nowhere in the world that that's equal. That's what we did, right? Which is how we end up taking on that spirit of offense. And so the limiting belief of I'm not enough, it took on several roles. Like I said, God's love is not enough. God is not enough, right? And then I'm not enough, okay? And so what happened is that the trauma from Eve, then the trauma from our parents, uh, our family's love story regarding those two things, right? The double whammy ended up infecting us right and then we put on that spirit of offense right and so you think about it like think about being in the kitchen and you are uh you've uh you got a batter going on making you some pancakes right and you got your flour and some people like to put uh flavoring in there so you might have put either vanilla or uh, almond extract i meant to say in there you might have added that in and then you're putting your milk in there. You might put nuts and berries and chia seeds and all of that type of thing. And then you either put butter or your oil in there, right? And then you're just mixing it up and you're flipping those pancakes. And then you got pancake number one and you're putting it on a plate. You're flipping them, put them on a the plate, right? As you're making them. So the first pancake would be just like uh, the uh, trauma that we inherited from Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? Then you got the second pancake. That's the trauma that we've inherited, right? And limited beliefs from our family's love story garden, right? And then the third pancake are subcategories of that. And you're like, well, what subcategories are each, each pancake after that? You got, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not light enough. I'm not black enough. I'm not white enough. I'm not dark enough. My hair is not straight enough. My hair is not long enough. My hair is not short enough my hair is not curly enough i mean we can just go on and on and on with these limiting beliefs with all these subcategories right but think of each of these right as pancakes that pal is real high on that plate right and so what happens is that in every relationship we encounter we take this stack of pancakes or venom so to speak right with us so if the relationships that we we enter are healthy we remain status quo if the relationships we enter are toxic 
then we just keep adding on pancakes right just keep adding on pancakes and we got a stacked pancake of venom in our souls right never releasing that seed of rejection the spirit of anger the spirit of bitterness and the spirit of offense right you just piling them up every relationship that you go into right and remember that spirit of uh offense and that seed of rejection is actually what's tied into the love and approval addictions okay so you can have fruit money places material possessions alcohol drugs i don't care what it is they're not going to fill that void okay the only thing it's going to do is to tie our souls into lust it's going to tie a knot and just keep tying a knot and keep tying a knot so you're just going to end up with all of these soul ties that you're creating and gathering along the way and the only way to get rid of them is partnering with the holy spirit to help you to release them right but think about it as long as satan can convince you that god's love isn't enough your soul is always going to crave a love uh whose substitute is right it's going to crave a substitute whose love is enough is what i meant to say right god's love is and always be enough his love is perfect right and remember, his, his love removes that fear of abandonment, right? And we know that nothing and no one can write that check because you will always be enough, right? And so instead of us going into our heads thinking that love is restrictive, we got to go along with the truth. That, that's the only way we can do it, okay? And what is the truth? Love never separates us from God, okay? God dismantled this life from us in Romans 8, 39, where it says, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we did number one, the seed of rejection, right? Number two, this is the second reason why you're a magnet for the narcissist. You're operating on a false concept of love. Your family's love story garden contained the following toxic roots. Love is abuse love is devalued love is abandonment right and so your concept of love is a man telling you everything you want to hear every day all day long right and how does he know how to approach you because he sizes you up by your posts on social media so if you're a christian and you're posting bible verses and other encouraging things and it's obvious of what it is that you are then he'll start this uh, man who's ready to love bomb you and pull you into that snare, he'll start DMing you verses, prophetic verses and prophetic words of God and affirmations and start talking about all the things of the Lord to pull you in. You know what I mean? Narcissists, for some uh, reason, they have like a sixth sense where they can just size you up and know what angle to approach you by, right? They'll even go out into your friends, look at some of your friends' posts and see how you respond and interact with their posts they know how to, to, to what angle to come at you see what i'm saying and so um the thing is once they start saying and doing everything that you ever hoped for you don't take the time to start thinking is this from god or is this sent from the devil himself okay and so what happens is that um this is going to keep happening until somehow he locks you in either he locks you in or he leaves because he figured you're not good enough supply and you might be thinking oh so i'm not good enough no the thing about it is he'll think that you're not good supply if you have self-awareness 
discernment, intuition, and your gut instinct that are at play, right? And you're not amused at him doing this all day long, every day, 24 seven. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. How was your evening? How was your afternoon? How was your morning? If you're not impressed with that, he'll know you're not good supply, right? Number three, the third thing that pulls us in to being a magnet for a narcissist. Excuse me, I had to get some water. I had a lot of water beforehand, but I'm drying out now. You are full of pride. I got it, I got it, I got it. I can handle myself. People just people, men are just men. You're full of pride. You underestimated what the scriptures call spiritual wickedness in high places. And you overestimated your own abilities to handle things once they get out of control. As if you are the savior, right? And in this pride, you leave out the door every day without your armor of God, okay? Samson had pride, full of pride, all the way up to the point that they gouged out his eyes. And how do we know this? His exact words that were in scripture, okay? He said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know, and then the scripture said, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. <laughs> so the hidden message becomes, I can do whatever, whenever, however, and play around with my identity and sit in relationships that uh, could possibly destroy my identity, right? And steal my identity. And, and God's still going to come through. You see what I'm saying? In the scripture in Hosea 4 and 6, it says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of God, I will also forget thy children. So God has given us his word. He's given us pastors. He's given us psychologists. He's given us self-help help books. He's given us spiritual growth books. He's given us uh, professionals on YouTube channels about setting boundaries and on and on and on. We learn about it and then we, we consume all this material and we still keep entering one narcissistic uh, abusive relationship after the next. We just keep on going. Okay, we get to the point where we just have rejected knowledge. Okay, and so uh, we end up the same point that Samson was at, right? And it wasn't like Samson didn't know what Delilah was up to. She was bold and arrogant. Okay, she was prideful herself. She told him exactly what she was going to do uh, and why she wanted to do it and that she needed to know how to do it. I mean, it don't, it, it just don't get any crazier than that. You see what I'm saying? She told him what she wanted. She told him her plan. You know, it wasn't like Samson could say, oh, I, I'm boo-boo the fool. I didn't know. No, he knew. She told him. In Judges 16, 5 through 6, it says, the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we can tie him up in a knot and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So she was about to get paid. And it says, so Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. This is no mystery, okay? She love bombed him through the spirit of seduction. Okay, like I said, she told him right out what she wanted, right? And uh, the same thing with this narcissist, your narcissistic partner. Even though he didn't tell you what he wanted, right? As a thief, 
it got to the point where you knew that the things were taking a turn, right? But you were so prideful. You underestimated him for being like all the other men that you dated, right? You underestimated and you overestimated your own abilities, right? Instead of going into that thing with God. And so the next thing you know, the rug was pulled from up under you, right? And you're hitting your head as you go down, right? And so another thing I want to note is that Delilah obviously went back and forth with Samson between love bombing and devaluing him. And you might wonder, like, why would you say that? Now, the love bombing involves all of that seduction and everything, right? But these games that she was playing with him, that's part of the devaluing stage. So it had to be an up and down type of thing that was going on. You see what I'm saying? But she told him right away, you know, once she seduced him, she told him right away what she wanted, right? And so that's when the games began. Like I said, so it was the up and down. And so uh, what he told her first, he said, okay, you need seven uh, bowstrings that's not been dried. So she tried that. And then the second time he told her, it's new ropes that have never been used. And it made me wonder if he got that from the men that had tied him with new ropes after he burned up all of the Philistines' field, open field there when the foxes ran into the field that he set on fire. So then the third time he said, you just weave the seven locks on my head to the web and you fasten it tight with a pen. So he was playing with her, right? But the, he was, she was going back and forth between love bombing and devaluing, right? And so... Um, the reason why, like I said, another reason why I said it, that it was going up and down because the game playing is during the devaluing stage. Love bombing, that's the enticing, right? And so when she had the men coming in, they they were hiding in an inner chamber is what scripture said. So that means that somehow the way they ended up in her bedroom, then they playing the game, and then they ended up in her bedroom. Like I said, so you're doing a love bomb and devalue, love bomb and devalue, love bomb and devalue. So they're just going up and down like a roller coaster. And guess what that's doing? setting up a tra uh, trauma bond for Samson. That's how trauma bonds are set. They can be set by sharing your traumatic story with someone. And if you're not careful bonding with them like that, and it can also be from that reward and devalue stage going up and down like a roller coaster. That's another way the trauma bonds are locked in, right? And then he also had what? A soul tied to her. He walked through a soul tied door that started with lust, okay? And so... um even in scripture, it gets to the point where it said that she made him fall asleep on her knees. That was the last point of love bombing him before uh, the men came in and they ended up shaving off the seven locks of his hair, right? And the scripture says it began to subdue him and his strength left him. Now think about it. If you fall asleep... You know, if you got a baby and you put them on your lap, I think about when I, my kids were babies and I put them, turned them over on my uh, lap and I would shake, you know, and you kind of rock back and forth and they end up falling asleep as their heads are kind of going like, that type of thing, right? But they're, they're resting. But when you got somebody falling asleep on your lap, we're not talking about a little kid or a toddler. We're talking about a grown man falling asleep, right? So, if you know, if you done got that relaxed as an adult, when you done fell asleep on somebody's knees, They've totally disarmed you. And the thing about it is that in this situation, Samson knew he was in danger. And it's the same way when you get caught up with your narcissistic partner, when you got caught up with him and any other individuals after him, you knew you were in danger. At a, there's a certain point where you know you're in danger. But you under this spell, you're so intoxicated 
and it feels so good with this euphoria and it's at the same time it feels off balance but all reasoning goes out the door and with samson like i said she already told him what she was going to do he already saw three times in a row she had these philistines hiding in the inner chamber and they kept trying what it was that he said he told her to do so one like he didn't know what she was planning so it's like okay so that fourth time that she told him uh that he told her rather to shave off the seven locks of his hair did he not think that she was not going to do it so he was playing with fire and he was also being prideful right and just expecting god to come through as like he already had and that there's nothing on his part on his end that he had to do to hold up his end of the deal that's not how it works and the scripture says uh do we continue in sin that grace may abound god forbid right and so the thing about it too though is that delilah and the philistines knew what samson what the two things that get to samson's heart his love for riddles his love for women and then you might be thinking okay now how do we know that over in uh judges the 14th chapter it talks about how he went down to timnah and saw a young philistine woman there right he told his father and mother that he wanted her i have seen a philistine woman in timnah now get her for me as my wife you see what i'm saying and so what happened is samson went to her people and what ended up happening is he posed a riddle to them and he said if you can guess it and i'm paraphrasing he basically told them if you can guess it i'm going to give you 30 pieces of linen if you can guess it i'll give you 30 pieces of linen and 30 changes of clothes right and if not then you all each of these 30 men have to give me 30 changes of clothes and 30 pieces of linen right and so they were feeling some kind of way because he did this right and what was his riddle he said um out of the eater something to eat out of the strong something sweet that was his riddle and they had to guess what it was right and so what they did they were upset by his riddle and the fact that they couldn't guess the answer so they went to his wife and pressed her and told her they were going to burn her up her and her father if she didn't get the answer right so what did she do she went to samson and she pressed on him sorely 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 and samson's basically like like i haven't even told my parents you think i'm gonna tell you and i haven't even told my parents the answer to this riddle but she kept pressing on him right and then this lasted for seven days that she did this crying and weeping and pressing on him wearing him down right and it made me think about what seven days the scripture always talks about seven and that's the ending of something right and remember when david's child's life was at stake david laid down and he fasted and prayed for seven days and after that he knew then you know once the lord took the child that was the end of it he got up so this lasted for seven days of her crying and oh you know you hate me you only hate me you don't love me so do you not think the philistines found out about this that's why they went and picked delilah and she was more toxic than this woman from timnod that samson had she delilah was a female narcissist okay and so uh like i said samson got pulled in he got pulled in he allowed his wife to wear him down but then the other thing that i looked at that too was thinking about um when samson gave in to her okay the thing about it is that we forget when we look as part of his pride and we look at ourselves we forget that satan is not creative 
when it comes to uh, our idols, right? Those things that our soul soul is lusting for, those things, right? And uh, our brokenness and sin. If we're not self-aware of our weaknesses and strengths, then we're going to be in the same position that Samson was, which is how you ended up with a narcissistic partner. When you're not self-aware of your weaknesses and strengths and how Satan pulls you in, he's going to use the same tactic every time. Because Samson, uh, he got a wife, right, from Timnah, okay? Then right after that, the scripture said he hooked up with a harlot, right? Then right after that, the scripture says he hooked up with Delilah. That's three women in a row. No time to heal or anything. And that's what you often find yourself in. You don't give yourself any time to heal. You just keep hopping from one man, one narcissistic man to the next narcissistic man to the next narcissistic man. Because that love addiction and approval addiction and that seed of rejection is running the show. You see what I'm saying? And so uh, by Samson having that weakness for women and loving riddles, the Philistines used those two things and had Delilah to work him on overtime. Because look, it worked with the wife that he married, the first woman he was with. It worked with her. She wore him down. He told her to answer. And he was so angry because next thing you know, the men came to him and told him what she had said. You see what I'm saying? Without using her name. And then Samson referred to her as a heifer. And the thing about it, that shows you something about his family's love story garden for him to tell these men i know where you got the answer from that you got it from my heifer this shows you that he was not respectful of women so he had to learn this from his father and how he related to his mother where would he have gotten that from you see what i'm saying but he was so angry because he had to give them linen and changes of clothes right and so then the thing about it he was so angry he took 300 foxes, burnt, tied them together, and they and set them on fire, and they went running into fields that burnt up like a lot of the Philistine land, right? And so the Philistines, they were mad, like, who in the world did this, right? They were piping mad. And the other thing, too, is that what happened, what led to him doing this to the foxes was that after he had, uh, after the Philistine men had guessed the riddle, right? Then what ended up happening is he had a goat with him, went back to the wife's house and her father had given her to his friend. So I want that to just digest. I want you to think about that for a moment. <laughs> this woman from Timnah who was married to Samson, the father had given her to another man. And this is the same mess that Saul did. And that was against the law at that time. But that's what they had done. You know, I don't know if they thought they were above the law. And so the father had to come up with some lame excuse as to why he did that, right? And so that's when Samson tied up 300 foxes, lit them on fire, set them off to go into a field. And that way he could say, I didn't have anything to do with it, right? Okay, so the next reason, the very next reason, okay, is that you have low self-esteem and low self-worth think about the story of leah and rachel okay you drank a spiritual cocktail so it's low self-esteem low self-worth uh, self and self-deception right leah deceived herself into thinking that god rewarded her 
for giving her handmaid to Jacob. That's some sick stuff, right? So she can continue to one-up in game with Rachel. That self-deception is what that is. And so when you get into a situation with a narcissistic partner, you are operating full-blown under self-deception. When you think that this is the way that God is helping you to do something because you were not obedient to the Holy Spirit, to the promptings, and he kept on not, you know, giving you prompting after prompting, but you figure, oh, your, your way of being with uh, your narcissistic partner was to fulfill uh, your destiny or your purpose some kind of way or your ministry. Satan puts all kinds of things and ideas in our minds and we just take it and we run with it, literally, okay? And so the next reason why <laughs> you end up being a magnet for the narcissist is that you possess toxic empathy. In other words, loving you is killing me, right? And that's what happened with Samson. He broke down under pressure. After seven days with his wife and her, oh, the only thing you do is hate me. You don't love me. Blah, blah, blah. So his resolve was like, oh, I can't change the situation. I'm, a t I'm sick and tired of her mouth. I'm going to tell her what it is. You see what I'm saying? And so, um, but his lust for women and treatment of them also shows you that he had a distorted view of women, right? Because of what he referred to him as, to the men, right? And so the thing about it is that when you met your narcissistic partner in order to pull you in, he started telling you about his childhood trauma and all the abuse that occurred. And then out of nowhere, he broke down just crying hysterically, just dramatic, crying all on the floor. And then you start feeling some kind of way, well, maybe, maybe I need to tell him what happened in my life too. So then you start telling him about your mama, uh, your grandmama, your granddaddy, your daddy. His grandmama, his mama and granddaddy, and, and, and just all the way down the line, the great, great, and great, great, great. You go all the way down the line talking about all the sins in your family. Before you knew it, you done gone way out there. You told him about your uh, low self-esteem issues. You told him about your body image issues, everything. And so then the next thing you know, he knows he's only got one more thing to do to lock you in with a soul tie, right? And then have the devaluation stage begin, right? Because you telling him that after he done pulled you in, you have a toxic empathy, you guys have created a trauma bomb without even the up and down cycles of the devaluation stage coming up, okay? That's part two of the trauma bomb. But part one is when you locked into his story and got so pulled in by that spiritual energy he was giving off that you uh, formed a trauma bond with him. It's like Gorilla Glue. That's the only way I can think of describing it, okay? So now we are on the last reason why you are a magnet for the narcissist and it is because his flying monkeys set you up once again the narcissist flying monkeys set you up okay there are some narcissists that you've gotten involved with because of the encouragement of their flying monkeys just plain and simple okay and so some of the conversation might go like you know your narcissistic partner says something you know what i was thinking about you know, kicking it with uh, Catherine. I was thinking about going after her. They're like, Catherine, church girl, Catherine? Nah, not Catherine. Nah, nah, nah. I wouldn't mess with her as I was you. Then, then they said, no, nah, you know what? No, you know what? Yeah, I would say, go after her. You know, do what you do best, man. Do what you do best. You know, work your magic. Work, work on overtime. You got it. You got it. You got it. You got this. They pump him up. And they're pumping up with some type of toxic way that he could 
maneuver his way on in and next thing you know he's gone to the you've gone to the next level with him okay now we're going to look at a very 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 tragic story okay that happened with amnon and his half sister tamar okay now absalom david's son had a beautiful sister and i'm reading from scripture second samuel 13th chapter whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Amnon idealized Tamar in his head. You see what I'm saying? Because he knew that it was against the law to be with your siblings. So his whole idealization, love bombing, all of that, that all went on in his head. This is some sick stuff, okay? And so, um, the thing about it was that, like I said, punishment for that kind of behavior was death. So all of this idealization went on in his head, right? And so then, uh, we know that Satan got a hold of Amnon's mind because the scripture said he was tormented. So anytime you tormented and sick over being with your In uh, the third through the fifth verses of 2 Samuel, it says, But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. You see what I'm saying? He said, they said he was a very crafty man. Crafty means that you are sneaky and full of the devil, so to speak, as my grandmother used to say when we were kids, Right? So it said that he was a very crafty man. And think about it. Who else was spoken of as being crafty in scripture? Satan himself. It says he was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Right? And so what does Jonadab suggest to Amnon? He says, uh, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. This is some sick stuff. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat. Prepare the food in my sight that I might see it and eat from your hand. Right? This is what Jonadab suggested to Amnon. Okay? And then later it says... So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. So he must have really been performing, probably just acting like you have a child when they're sick and they just don't want to be bothered and moaning and groaning and whatnot, right? And it says, and Amnon says, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she made, brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. So right at that point, 
is when the devaluation began. He idealized all of this mess in his head, right? Due to spirit of deception, right? That was self-deception. But then he devalued her the moment he said, come and lie with me. You see what I'm saying? And so then, she, let's, I'm going to tell you what she said. I'm going to read right from scripture. No, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you be as one of those outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king for he'll not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Okay. And so in these times, women were isolated. They were looked upon as damaged goods. And whenever this type of situation, you know, type of situation occurs, that's how they saw the women as damaged goods. And so in essence, it's like, then they see it as going from virgin status to damaged goods. And that was, like I said, that was according to their standards. But according to God's standards, no matter how much we sin, right? No matter how much we fall away from him and have to come back, we're never devalued in God's eyes, right? Our royalty status and our inheritance and our uh, birthright is our birthright. We can't have that is taken away from us, right? And so the thing about it is that uh, Jesus' death on the cross allowed us to be redeemed, right? And then God, through the spirit of sonship, adopted us, right? But when you get to the devaluing stage with a narcissist, the whole goal of the devaluation stage is to strip away that spirit of sonship and give you an orphan spirit. As if like, you know, the undertone is I'm, I'm, I'm all by myself. I don't have anybody uh, to be with me. I'm isolated. I'm alone. You know, no, nobody's here for me. I'm just in a state of abandonment. I'm forsaken. Right. And so um, in essence, like I said, you walk around just being lost. Right. And so to further seal the deal, what the narcissist would do is gaslight you and triangulate you when you dare set up boundaries and question them about their behavior during a devaluation stage. They'll start telling you stuff like, well, I wish you will go, you go, go and tell Sarah if you want to. Go and tell Sarah and Jackie. They're going to think you're crazy anyway. So they always pull a third party in to triangulate, right? They don't think you're a mess. So you're going to tell them what, what, what you did. And because of their spiritual energy that they give out, right? And the issues that's wrong with them, that's all they got to do is pull a third party in. And then you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's right. You internalize. You start thinking, yeah, that's right. They are going to think I'm crazy. And then you back down, right? And then you start feeling guilty for something that started off with them. The whole conversation started off with them, right? So Tamar, her flight or fight kicked in. And so what she did, she responded with a fight response, right? And with a fight response, you could literally be fighting, yelling, screaming, kicking, all of that. Or you could over-explain or over, um, over-share with somebody. And you can also, a healthy part of a fight response is trying to reason with them. So she decided she was going to try to reason with Amnon. Mm-mm. He wasn't to be reasoned with. And even when she told Amnon, like, maybe you can talk to the king and see what he'll do. She knew David wasn't going to go with that mess he wasn't going to agree with that mess david had already been in a pickle with bathsheba and that's how psalm 51 came about david was not trying to promote any other uh sexual sin going on particularly that of uh, between his children after all of the mess that he had to pray for restoration of his identity from right and so 
Uh, but she used that to try to reason with Amnon and make him think like, oh, yeah, maybe I could just ask him so she could get herself out of it. Amnon didn't care. Right. And then in 2 Samuel 13, 15 through 17, it says, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong and sending me away, it's greater than the other that you did to me, but he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Okay, this is some sick stuff. Okay, so it's like if you didn't know Amnon was a narcissist before, definitely this should be the come to Jesus moment. And even in the relationship you're in with your narcissistic, that you just got out of with your narcissistic partner or you're in currently, right? He discards of her and has his servant to bolt the door behind her. One thing about it with narcissists, when they, uh, whether it's a discard or whatever decision that they make, whatever behavior that they make with a narcissist is that they will uh, use somebody else as a poison container slash scapegoat slash punching bag, right? And they'll use them for that purpose to dump all of their shame and unresolved trauma, right? They'll dump it right onto that person. And these are decisions, mind you, that they decided to make. Dump all of that, right? Into that person and self-hatred. Forgot about that one. So all of their shame, unresolved trauma, and self-hatred. But this is all because of a decision that they decided to make. But what they would do is take that, if you remember the romantic partner, They'll take it and they'll put it all through you, all in your soul. And if you're a family member or a co-worker or ministry partner, sister and brother in Christ from the congregation, pour it all, blow your trauma, blow their trauma rather right through you. Because remember, there are three things that we can do when we have clutter, okay? Clutter in our minds, clutter in our hearts, clutter in our soul. We can either keep, we either keep it, we give it away. Or we throw it away. And when we give it away, that means we're blowing our junk through someone else, right? And so think about it is that um, when it comes to your narcissistic partner, if you call him out on his behavior, then what will happen? Gaslighting you, gaslighting you, gaslighting you, gaslighting you, right? Or what they will do is go into a narcissistic rage, and what that rage does is basically it's another form of bullying you to get you to back down. So in some cases, you'll go ahead and back down like, okay, I'm done, right? And so what he was in essence trying to do, he's been able to do that because you back down. You got scared with him yelling and screaming like he lost his mind and being contorted, his whole face contorted and looking like a demon, you back down. But then there might be some situations where you don't back down. You're like, mm -mm, no, 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 I'm not playing with this. I'm sick and tired of this. I'm setting a boundary. Then what happens is he'll go to step number two. If the bullying doesn't work, he will pretend like he's the victim. Oh, everybody's out. Everybody's going to kill out for me. Everybody's trying to kill me. Everybody's out for me. Oh, my goodness. Everybody's out to get me. And it'll be this whole victim thing. And next thing you know, it'll be the same thing like it was with the gaslighting. The script is flipped. And next thing you know, you are taking ownership for his behavior, right? And he's won. Okay, then what could happen is if you're still real strong and you're like, nope, I'm still not putting up with this. And you get to number three where you pass the victim mode. You went from bully to victim. 
and you still stand up for yourself. So if you get to, if you didn't pass both of those two, you better be guaranteed. Number three will be, you will be talking to a child inside of an adult body. He will turn into about three years old and start going at, I call it the please help me, I don't understand phase because he will start acting like he don't understand what it was that he did wrong. And if you could just please show him, everything will be okay. It's really, um, it's straight from the pit, sent from Satan himself, but it's really something to see those three phases go through, okay? And so the best thing to do when you get into that phase, if you stood your ground, is to just walk away because what's going to happen from there is you're going to keep talking to a child. He's going to keep taking you in word salad. You're going to keep going round and round and round and round and round in conversation. Nothing's resolved. You see what I'm saying? And so the sad thing about it, when you look at the situation between Amnon and Tamar, she mentioned to, uh, Tamar mentioned to Amnon that it was better if he would just go ahead and, uh, stay with her and be with her rather than the discard of her. You see what I'm saying? And that shows how her self-worth was just that low where she said it was better for him to keep her than to discard of her. This man has violated your soul. And that's how you end up in the situations with your narcissistic partner. He's played with your man so much that you think it's better. Any kind of treatment, the violation of your mind, body, soul, and spirit is better than him abandoning you. That is really not a good place to be at, right? After all of the devaluing everything, but that's how he's gotten to your mind, right? He has gotten to your mind. And so one thing that the Holy Spirit gave me about the relationship between Amnon and Tamar, this was, this was a transitionally supplied soul-tied toxic relationship, okay? Remember, transitionally supplied soul-tied toxic relationships are those relationships where the person that's picked as supply is just helping the narcissistic partner go through a transition. And then you might be like, well, what transition was it? To fulfill the lust of his soul. It was nothing but a transaction. It was tied into perversion and deception, okay? Because Amnon had already, when he started that whole idealization in his head, he'd already walked himself through a soul tie door. But then what he did was walk Tamar through that as well, linked her soul to that toxicity in his and added self-hatred on top of it, right? And then think about it too. He told his servant to bolt the door uh, behind her. So it's like he already knew, okay? I've given you a soul tie. I've set that up in you. And I know you're going to want to come back. So I'm going to make sure you're not getting back up in here. But what did this do to Tamar, right? It, it gave her the message. She better not come back. She better not even think about dealing with that mess, right? And so when you are in transitionally uh, supplied soul tie toxic relationships, they always leave the victim with more questions and answers, right? And it makes you, there's something inside of you that it's, it's like it set up this inner drive, the spiritual inner drive where you just keep wanting to go back to get closure from them. You stalk in their uh, Facebook page, you're DMing them, you're sending him emails, you're popping up at his house, you're popping up at his job, you're just throwing yourself on him. But Amnon was like, hey, we, we're going to avoid all that happened. You bolt the door behind her. You see what I'm saying? And so when women go back to the narcissistic partners, when you go back, the narcissistic partner looks at it as 
you lowered your, lowered your value even more because they look at it as you disrespected yourself, that you uh, don't have any dignity left, that you devalue yourself. And so they really look at you even less than they looked at you when they first got rid of you, so to speak, right? But because your soul is tied, right? Because your soul is tied to his, this is the only way, to, the only thing you know how to do. You see what I'm saying? Because that your soul is craving his body, unfortunately. It's like the OJ song says, your body is here with me, but your mind is on the other side of town. Okay, there's a soul tied there. And when you got a soul tied, and what happens is, you, you know, he's put a snare in your soul, so to speak. And it leaves the victim in a state of withdrawal, trauma bonds, and soul ties. What he did to her, it was just, this was jacked up. And so let's see what happened at the end of this chapter. It says in the scripture, now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her and Tamar put ashes on her head and she tore the long robe that she wore and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she uh, went. And her brother Amnon said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? You see what I'm saying? Now, and then, um, he said, now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So there you go. It was hate. He took his self-hatred and put it inside of Tamar, right? And that was, like I said, that was number self-hatred. And then what he did was he also hated Absalom, uh, Amnon for what he did, okay? And so the thing about it is, as I want to just uh, have you to think about this for a moment once again, is that when you are dealing with narcissistic individuals, they make decisions, right? And then when they are unhappy with those decisions that they've made, right? In, in order to take that shame and self-hatred, and unresolved trauma and conflict inside of their internal soul that that demonic spirit inside of them is uh, experiencing, they have to take that and do something with it. And what they do is usually take it and use someone as a poison container slash scapegoat slash punching bag to blow all their trauma through. That's what they do instead of dealing with it because they're not going to deal with it, okay? And so, uh, Jonadab, was Amnon's flying monkey. He was full of evil, confusion, and strife. And yes, Amnon made the ultimate decision himself to do what he did to his half-sister Tamar. However, Jonadab emboldened Amnon, okay, to take that self-deception and that idealization that he had in his mind to the next level. Remember, you are already enough, okay? You can own your story, and you can rebuild your family's love story garden. Reclaim your power, soul, and identity today. Grab your keys to the kingdom and get your inheritance. God bless and until next time. By earth there was a God. They call him the
love that refined Thank you. 